We live in a generation that has lost the ability to have civil conversations about controversial topics. So what should we do about that? Truth Currents teaches us to think biblically. Let's talk today about how to speak biblically in tough settings. In the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, we find a classic example of a Christian talking to non-Christians, to unbelievers, in a way that bridges that chasm between opposing philosophies and offers a way to come together in agreement on some things so that from that foundation point, other topics can be discussed. It's the Apostle Paul, and he finds himself in the city of Athens in ancient Greece. Athens was, uh, was at one time the great uh, intellectual capital of the ancient world. It was the city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, of Epicurus and Zeno. And yet, by the time we get to the New Testament era, Paul was in an Athens that had declined from its great intellectual heritage. It was now merely the capital of idolatry. The great thinkers of Greek history had been replaced by pseudo-intellectuals who played at statesmanship. One thing that's thrilling for me about being a student of God's Word in 2022 is that there are so many fascinating parallels between the 21st century and the 1st century. It leads me to great uh, encouragement because I believe that the church that had such an impact in the 1st century Roman Empire is precisely the answer to the problems of the 21st century Western civilization empire. I think the church is relevant, and I think what we bring to the table is critical, but we have to know how to engage in conversations with people who by and large uh, aren't open initially to those conversations. Much like the decline of Athens, we look at uh, the American experiment and we see that we were founded by a generation of, uh, of great thinkers, of men who were educated in Western civilization, who understood human nature, who had a grasp of the Judeo-Christian worldview and the implications that that had for building a, a nation from scratch. 240-something years later, those founding fathers, those great statesmen of our heritage, have been replaced by pragmatists, utilitarians, atheists, agnostics, progressives, socialists, and secular humanists, all playing at the idea that they're somehow profound thinkers when in fact what they hold to, by and large, makes no rational sense whatsoever. So how does the church engage a culture that has lost the ability to make sense of the world? Well, Paul gives us a great example. He finds himself in, in Athens, and I want to just share some verses from Acts chapter 17 and see if we can't draw parallels from Paul's experience with what we can do in our generation. In verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, it starts by saying, now while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for traveling companions, he was meeting them in Athens, and he arrived first, so he's 
wandering the city, sort of seeing the sights while he waits for uh, the rest of his team to arrive. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. I find that interesting because what it says is that Paul looked at the culture around him and rather than throwing up his arms and saying, man, there is no hope here, the gospel just can't penetrate uh, this uh, secular mindset, this uh, uh, false theology that dominates the day. Paul had such a passion, such an, uh, a righteous motivation that the name of God be glorified, that Christ be given His rightful place on the earth, that He saw a city filled with idols, with people worshiping idols everywhere He turned. And it says it provoked His spirit. It was a kind of internal rage, a righteous indignation. One of the things that has to happen in 2022 is the church has to get to that point where we are internally provoked. By and large, the church has thrown up their hands. Pastors are preaching uh, soft, easy messages to sort of pacify the crowds. The, the average church in America uh, can be defined as a docile man standing in front of a docile crowd, encouraging them to be more, more docile still. It's time for the church to get a little burn their blanket, a little prov provocation in their spirit. Because the generation in which we live doesn't recognize the glory of God and the honor of Christ. That's our job to communicate that. So how do we do it? Well, let's see what Paul did. It says in verse 17, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Paul, Paul began to have conversations in two different places, about the things of God. He went to the synagogue where he found the church people. He actually, uh, I, I love this about Paul, Paul was unimpressed by most of what he saw in the world. He was so aware of the glory that, was, that belonged to Jesus that human invention and human accomplishment never really had much appeal for Paul. And so he would go to the church and instead of being impressed by uh, the location where they met or the size of the crowd, he would have conversations with them, encouraging them to understand what was true out of the Word of God and to live a life that brought honor to God, to recognize that God had come in the flesh in the person of Jesus and that the Messiah was here already. But he didn't just go to church people and have those conversations. It says he went to the non-church people. He went to the marketplace. He was in a city that was proud of their artistic and cultural heritage. But Paul looked at them and he saw that they were worshiping everything, which in effect means that they were worshiping nothing. If everything is worthy of worship, then nothing really is worshiped. There's a kind of restless agony when life is filled with false gods. Now, it may be actual idols on a stand, but in our culture, it's probably more likely that we have filled that place of worship, that yearning that is inherent in the human spirit. We have filled that place of worship with 
possessions and positions and power and influence and sexual gratification. And we ought to see that for what it is. False gods that at best produce a kind of restlessness that never brings satisfaction. There's only one object of worship that satisfies the human spirit. Well, this chapter begins to tell us about Paul's conversation in the marketplace with those people uh, that he was trying to find common ground with so that he could begin a conversation that would lead to a discussion about Jesus. Verse 18, it says, And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? Others, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They were obsessed with the novelty of new ideas. And so Paul met them at that point and presented something that they hadn't heard of before. Now, the starting point for this, for bridging this, this chasm is that Paul, first of all, had to make himself available to talk. It's interesting. They had a real low opinion of him initially. In fact, if you look at the words that, that show up in the Greek text of this chapter, they called him a babbler. Um, it's the word spermologos. We might translate it a seed picker or a redneck. They looked at Paul, even though Paul was a highly educated man, they looked down on him as somebody from the boonies that had just shown up here in the big time who was spouting new ideas that uh, that they had never heard before. Paul wasn't put off by their opinion of him, and he wasn't afraid of their misconceptions. He was willing to talk. We're so put off when somebody doesn't immediately think that we know what we're talking about that we have, by and large, Christians in this country have resigned themselves to only having conversations about Jesus inside the walls of our churches, in what you might term the Christian ghetto. We can talk in church about Jesus. We need to. We need to build up our doctrinal understanding. We need to encourage each other in the knowledge of what's true. But folks, we, we, we have to be willing to go out where the world doesn't think highly of us and still be available to talk. That's what Paul teaches us. Well, in verse 22 it shows that he began to use an appropriate kind of persuasion. I want you to follow this. Now, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. It's interesting he said, "Let's. Uh, uh, I, I want to come. I've noticed that, that we share something in common. We're both very religious. But here's the difference. I noticed that there is a statue with the designation 
to the unknown God. See, what the Athenians had done was they had a God that did this and a God for this and a God for that and a God over there. But just so that they could cover all their bases, just so that they wouldn't offend any deity that they were unaware of, they had uh, a safety net. They had a statue to an unknown God because they wanted to make sure that the gods never got angry because somebody was left out. Yeah, that's the problem when you have a whole pantheon of gods to keep track of. Paul said, I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. He's actually out there and you don't know his name, but I've come to identify him for you. But look how he does it. The God, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your poets have said, we also are his descendants. Here's what Paul did. He said, let's talk about what we have in common. We both believe that God made the world, that he was a creator. We both believe that God gave all people life. We both believe that God controls the destiny of nations. We both believe that God reveals himself and that he makes himself available to be known by those who look for him. In fact, we both believe that he's never that far away from us if we pay attention. This is not a recipe for us to go out and, and pursue it precisely. It's a model. Some of our culture won't be in agreement of some of those things with us. But we find those things that we have in common. For example, the idea that mankind is not living up to its potential. That the world is not clearly not functioning the way it ought to. We can find conclusions about our generation that we have in agreement with those around us. And in those conversations, we start from those common places to begin to disassemble faulty worldviews. We do that by asking questions. Why do you think that? How did you come to that conclusion? What's your evidence for what you believe about this subject? As we disassemble faulty worldviews, then we reassemble a worldview based on the Word of God. Sometimes we call this evangelism. Sometimes we call it apologetics. It's basically just doctrinal conversation that starts with common ground, basic assumptions that we can agree on, and moves outward to the implications of what we can agree on. If we, if we both believe that God exists, then let's start there. If God exists, then what kind of God do you think he would be? If God exists, don't you think that he would make himself known in some way? 
If God exists and he would make himself known, don't you think that he would make himself known in a way that is intelligible, that is understandable? If God exists and he would make himself known and he would do it in a way that was intelligible and understandable, how would he record that so that successive generations could have that knowledge? You see, you work through the implications of agreement that lead to other conclusions and you build a worldview that shows that Christianity is not some bigoted, judgmental belief system. It's actually a rational worldview that provides a logical explanation for the way the world operates. It explains reality the best. We've got to think biblically about current events. But once we've begun to develop the discipline of thinking biblically, the next step is we need to develop the passion for engaging biblically with those who need to know what's true and what's false. Think biblically. But it's time for the church to be a little provoked in our spirit at the falsehoods in the world around us. And instead of screaming at protesters on the street, we need to engage individuals in conversation. You say, we'll never win the culture wars one person at a time. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's precisely the strategy God has used in every generation. We're the church. Let's get to it. This is Truth Currents. Oh,